One of the basic needs of all armies is to find the enemy. Every general knows this. And what you tend to do is you use scouts and, and spies and, you know, and, and reconnaissance. And there was a little bit of this done, but not seriously. And again, for the same reason, because there was this assumption Chelmsford had that the enemy wouldn't attack. So he he basically made just about every mistake you could in the rule book. He divided his force. He didn't understand where the enemy was. Overconfidence. I mean, this is a sort of checklist of things not to do. And you almost always get this checklist when there's a military disaster. Sir, sentries come in from the hill. They say other side. Sir, you have something to report? Sir, and tell me. Very good, sir. The sentries report Zulus to the southwest. Thousands of them. Hello and welcome to this week's pod. My name is Oliver Webb Carter and I'm the editor and your host. And this week at the 144th anniversary, I'm talking the Zulu War, which began in January 1879. The Aspects of History Book of the Month is Zulu by Saul David, and he joins me as we discuss the conflict. Now, as you've heard there, it was made famous by the film Zulu, directed by Cy Enfield and starring Stanley Baker and Michael Caine. This film came out during the civil rights movements in the United States in 1964, and I'm sure that was influential as to why it presents the Zulus accurately and sympathetically, as it should. For this was a war of aggression by the British, in an unprovoked invasion of a nation that it had signed a treaty with. The Zulus, and you'll know this dear listeners because I had them at number three in my bonus episode of Top Families of History, are a highly fascinating culture that had risen to a powerful position in southern Africa. In our chat, we talk about the build-up to the war, disaster at Izandwana, when the Zulus, in a brilliant attack, wiped out almost the entire British force, Rourke's drift in the film, the personalities involved in the aftermath, and what it says about empire and colonialism today. Now from a thousand feet up it looks like a classic case of the British Empire attacking and subjugating a far smaller nation. And whilst that's obviously true, there are many subplots when we zoom in that make this war more complicated than it first appears. Please rate and review if you can and do subscribe as we've got plenty more great history coming up including Gary Sheffield on the First World War and Tom Petch on the SAS. I've got fellow podcasters Miranda Mallins and Paul Lay joining me to talk about the 17th century, and there's much, much more, including a chat with a great filmmaker and twice Oscar-nominated John Sayles coming up in the first Saturday in March. But until then, do sit back and enjoy my chat with Saul David on the Zulu War. Saul David, welcome back to the podcast. Uh, this is this is actually I was looking into this because I, I, I wanted to see how many times you've been on, and you're quite a, you're becoming not only a friend like a best friend of of the podcast. Um, so it's a real thank you very much for returning, and we're here to talk about uh, your book Zulu, uh, which is the account of the Zulu War. Um, so I'm very excited about this. Great, thanks, Ollie. Pleasure to be here. Well. Um, so I first came across your book. I got I got it through your your book your another book you wrote, which is called Victoria's Wars, which I I view as the sort of gateway drug to to Saul David nineteenth uh, century books because you then get uh, interested in Zulu, you get the uh, Indian Mutiny, 
Um, and so it's um, it's 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 a great world that, that you introduced me to. And Zulu was one I absolutely loved. We're in January. It's the 20th. We're speaking on the 26th of January on the 22nd. It's the anniversary of two battles, Isandlwana and Rourke's Drift. And so I wanted to get you on so we could talk about the conflict itself. And I also wanted to talk a little bit um, once we've covered the war, um, what it, what we should think about, what, how we should look at it today, certainly with colonialism being such a hot topic. But I thought we could just kick off with just explaining the lay of the land as it was in 1879 or 1878, December 1878, and then into 1879, when the the British colonial rule um, was different to how South Africa exists today. So I wondered if you could just kick off by explaining a little bit about what the uh, what the country of Southern Africa was looking like. It wasn't really a country, was it? No, it was Southern Africa rather than South Africa. But the intention very much was to confederate the the uh, the constituent parts, both the British colonies, the Boer republics who, who were causing so much trouble and also some of the African states. Uh, and one of them, of course, was Zululand. You have to go back to understand the British uh, connection to South Africa to 1806 when the British arrived in the Cape Colony. And uh, their first sort of move was to muscle out the Boers, these um, Dutch German settlers who'd been there for a significant amount of time, actually, from uh, a couple of centuries earlier. And the Boers gradually moved to the north. And of course, this had a knock on effect to a lot of the African states and tribes and, and nations that they were going to bump up against. And slowly but surely, the Brits expanded their footprint in southern Africa to include the Natal colony in 1843. So you've now got two uh, crown colonies. You've got two Boer republics, the Orange Free State and the Transvaal. And you've got a number of quite uh, powerful African kingdoms, one of which is Zululand. Now, Zululand is far and away the most powerful African kingdom of that time. And at one stage, I mean, it it encompassed uh, 250,000 Africans, and it had been created really by conquest in the, towards the end of the 18th century. The Zulu tribe was really very small. It was only about uh, 1,500 strong. Uh, and, and you can see that partly down to the military genius of the Zulu king Shaka, uh, and the revolutionary warfare means of warfare that he introduced, you you had this massive expansion of Zululand, not only uh, subsuming uh, tribes that it had conquered, but also influencing a lot of tribes further and field. So the actual spread of the Zulu kingdom was probably, you know, twice as far as its actual territorial borders. Now, if you move on to the late 1870s, as, as you uh, as you've asked, You've got a situation where the British are getting more interested, as I as I mentioned, in confederating Southern Africa. Now, the reason they want to do that, interestingly enough, is not because they're interested in expanding the empire per se. They want to make the empire more affordable. They want it really to be self-supporting. So they want to create a system down there where the white settlers really are going to get some form of self-rule, which, of course, has just been given to Canada and will eventually be given to Australia and New Zealand. So... They realise that the Zulus are, are a problem. Uh, they're a very powerful nation. There's effectively a treaty between the British and the Zulus at this time. But uh, the British uh, government is beginning to think, well, we're going to need to deal with the problem. And so it sends out a proconsul, a very highly regarded proconsul. Um, uh, that is a local governor. 
called uh, Sir Bartle Frere. And Frere's given quite, you know, basic orders. Make sure that you subdue any opposition from the African kingdoms uh, and, and try and work towards the Confederation of Southern Africa. This They're also going to bump up against the, the Boers, of course, uh, in their two republics at some stage. But that's a story to come. And that will lead on to the first Anglo-Transvaal War of 1880 to 1881, which the British lose, one of the few conflicts they lose in the 19th century, and in fact, arguably the only one. And then, of course, to the Second Boer War, which ultimately the British win, but at huge costs and huge political costs too. So, and that's 1899 to 1902. In between, you've got this issue of how to deal with the with the Zulus. And Frere, uh, encouraged by a lot of local settlers, it must be said, uh, effectively delivers an ultimatum which the Zulus cannot accept because it effectively means giving up their sovereignty. Uh, it's a sort of interfering in their military system. It's uh, making sure that they uh, agree with the advice of a, a British resident. I mean, they really would be giving away all their political power. And so, of course, they refuse. Uh, and this leads to war. And the British move is pretty aggressive. There's an invasion of Zululand on three axes, three forces invade. And it's the central one that we're most interested in, because that was the biggest one, the central column, as it was known. It crossed at Rourke's Drift into Zululand. And its intention was to bring the Zulus to battle. There was an assumption among the commander, um, Lord Chelmsford, uh, hugely underestimated the power of the Zulus and assumed they wouldn't fight. And therefore, he would have to literally find them and bring them to the battle. Now, this is a complete misunderstanding of Zulu culture uh, and Zulu battle tactics, frankly, which are incredibly aggressive. They've developed this short stabbing spear that can only be used at close quarters. So the whole system of their battlefield tactic is to close with the enemy, surround the enemy, uh, and then fight at close quarters. So he's hopelessly uh, misunderstood what's likely to happen. Uh, and of course, as a result, is not taking as much care on the line of march as he should have done because he's thinking I've got to find the Zulus whereas in actual fact they're coming towards him he goes in with an army of 5,000 strong he fatally uh, weakens it by dividing it not once but twice so that by the morning of the 22nd of January 1879 uh, the camp at Islanwana which is the sort of base it's just a, one of the camps along the way they're heading towards the Zulu capital of Alundi, but that camp at Isanwana is left with just 1,700 men, and only about 900 of those are British soldiers, the rest are African levies. So it's a strong force, but it's not um, impregnable, as we're going to discover. Uh, and it is up against an army, uh, as it turns out, of 20,000 disciplined uh, veteran Zulu warriors. And I'd just like to um, explore those Zulu warriors because um, just looking through your book again, you really go into a lot of detail into look, looking at the opponents of the British and, and, and this Zulu culture is a sort of militaristic culture. And it's so reminiscent of, of ancient Sparta, which I, which I wonder is, is maybe one of the reasons why the British were quite fascinated by the Zulus in, in the Victorian period. It is indeed. In fact, they were, they were known uh, as the Black Spartans. Uh, and you're right, the analogy is a very good one. Uh, there's also another analogy, which I'll move on to in a second, which is that their tactics were very similar to the tactics the Romans used. So there's this extraordinary link with ancient warfare. And yet there is absolutely no evidence that they ever understood or ever knew anything about Greek warfare or indeed Roman warfare. 
But the Spartans, of course, the young boys in Spartan culture were brought up to be warriors. They were famously sort of sent out when they were very young and, and forced to live in really tough conditions, hence the word Spartan. Uh, and for the Zulu boys, it was very similar. They they were taken away from their families at a very young age and effectively put into mini regiments uh, that would, uh, and when they came of age, of course, they would join the regiments proper. And the society was incredibly militarized, as you suggest, Oli. The uh, young men in Zululand could not marry without permission. Uh, and once they married, they would then move on to a separate married regiment. So it was all incredibly ordered and wives were chosen for them. Um, you know, in many ways, you look back and you think, crikey, that's not, you know, a society I would have fancied much. But, you know, of course, for a young Zulu boy who uh, was brought up to believe, just as Spartans were, that, you know, there, there was no higher calling than to be a warrior and to die on the field of battle. You can understand why they bought into that whole system. And what it produced is this incredibly disciplined, effective military force that, that allied to the military innovations that I've already uh, mentioned, the use of the short stabbing spear, the different tactics, the envelopment tactics. Uh, he even suggested, though, Shaka even suggested using the uh, shield as a, as an offensive weapon, you would sweep away your enemy's shield, and that would expose his left side for the plunge with the short stabbing spear, the ikluar. So it was all incredibly, uh, uh, it, it was all thought out in great detail, and it was very effective. The question is, is it going to be effective against um, a, a European army armed with breech-loading rifles and, in some cases, machine guns? I mean, they had the early Gatling guns. Uh, in the in the Zulu war. Chelmsford didn't believe for a minute that the Zulus would be able to stand up against disciplined uh, infantrymen, even if they were hopelessly outnumbered, which is one of the reasons why he was so cavalier in dividing his force. Now, it was very fortunate for Chelmsford that he was with the part of the force that had left the camp. Um, he left it under the command of a colonel called Pelaine. And Pelaine, during the morning of the battle on the 22nd, is actually superseded by a, a superior officer, a man called Durnford, who's come in. Uh, and it, basically, Durnford's been given orders to join uh, the main column, that is Chelmsford's column. But he stops along the way at the camp. And it's while he's sort of discussing what to do next that the Zulus begin their attack. And so you you finally get this battle against about 1,700 uh, British and Africans, uh, and as I say, 20,000 Zulus. And this battle is, I guess it's a perfect example of, of the Zulu tactics with the bull's horn, isn't it? Yeah, the horns of the buffalo, as as uh, as it was known, and the tactic the Zulu uses is that they advance the main body or the chest of the buffalo advances. So you, you have a series of of regiments that are assigned to the chest uh, part of the formation, and their job is to fix the enemy. In other words, to engage the enemy and keep it fixed in a steady position. Meanwhile, the two horns of the buffalo, so Zulus uh, in regiments, go out on either side, and they fully envelop the enemy. So they go all the way around the side. Now, again, this goes back to ancient warfare because it's, it's the Battle of Cannae, basically. I mean, this is uh, Carthage. This is Hannibal against the Romans um, in ancient times. And again, there is no sort of suggestion that the Zulus would ever have known the history. You know, Zulus, we, we don't know for sure, of course, because they, they didn't write things down, but there's nothing in the oral tradition of the Zulus to suggest that there was any kind of knowledge of what the uh, of, of what the Greeks and the Romans had done all that time ago. So it is extraordinary when you think about it. And I suppose maybe we're just talking about kind of universal principles of warfare here. And, and maybe we shouldn't be that surprised. But but yes, the battle was a perfect example of that. It didn't go 
uh, uh, you know, as simply, of course, as the Zulus would have wished it to, because in the course of fixing the uh, the camp, that is the main body of the defenders in one position, they took enormous casualties. I mean, thousands of casualties, uh, because, of course, those breech loading uh, weapons were incredibly effective. But while uh, that battle was going on at the front of the camp, these two horns were racing round to the back of the camp. And of course, when they finally meet, um, uh, they and they've trapped any retreat from the camp. Some people do get out, but most of them are trapped. Uh, then it's just a fight to the death. And, and as the afternoon wears on, uh, the butchery continues until not a single uh, living soul is left in the camp. That is 1,300 corpses. And they've been killed with sharp-edged weapons. So you can imagine it was a pretty gruesome sight. Hey, rereading um, your account, it's 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 extraordinary that even at around lunchtime uh, that you mentioned Pulain, one of the senior officers in the camp, he's telling he's telling his his officers to go and get some lunch whilst they're being attacked. This totally underestimating the the the, the Zulu opponents. It's extraordinary it, that confidence that Chelmsford had filtered all the way down to his senior officers and and maybe even below to the ranks. Yeah, there's no question it did, the overconfidence. And in fact, in, in the book Zulu, I quote a number of people in the months leading up to the fight saying it's going to be, you know, a piece of cake. There were one or two dissenting voices saying, actually, we need to be careful. This is a really formidable opponent. But on the whole, uh, most of the army uh, took Chelmsford's lead and did not think there would be a problem. And that moment you're talking about is when the Zulus are first spotted uh, uh, by scouts and the information is brought back to the camp and Pelin very much thinks well yeah they've sent a few scouts out but they're not going to attack if anything they're heading in the opposite direction he was getting conflicting reports actually some people saying they were withdrawing some people saying they were coming on but because he had a preconceived view that they were you know they, it was going to be difficult to bring them to battle he believed the ones that said they were running away rather than they were attacking and of course the opposite was true so yes a terrible sense of overconfidence and of course people said after the battle well he should really have drawn you know his troops into a tight lager um, uh, circle the wagons quite literally because they had a lot of wagons there and that was the tactic the Boers had always used against the Zulus uh, and he might have been all right and uh, indeed he might have been all right but that is uh, to presuppose that uh, they weren't overconfident and that they hadn't actually been left specific battle instructions by Chelmsford to operate in a certain way and that way was to encourage the Zulus to come onto them whereas in fact the opposite uh, needed to be the case they should have been over cautious and interesting enough after this battle and after Rorkstrip uh, they very much take the opposite view and every time they come anywhere near the Zulus they make sure that they're solidly entrenched to give themselves the best chance of defeating them well you've mentioned Rorkstrift, um uh and so well we can't mention Rorkstrift without the movie starring Stanley Baker and Michael Caine so listeners if you haven't seen Zulu stop the podcast watch Zulu and then come back because this takes place on the same day, doesn't it? And um, a little bit later. And here, it's sort of um, it's this sort of same scenario. You, you've got British um, outnumbered British being attacked, but uh, this time they are in a secure position, and there is certainly not a slaughter. It's a, it's one of the great. Um, I, I wouldn't. I guess it is a victory, but it's uh, it's certainly one of the the great battles in in nineteenth century history. 
Yeah, it's certainly known as one of the iconic battles. The question is, is it, was it ever as significant as as uh, was made out? And in my belief, it wasn't. Now, and that's not to belittle the the courage of the people who fought that battle. They were they were, as uh, Lord Wolsey puts it, and Wolsey comes out uh, shortly after these battles to take command from from Chelmsford uh, they were caught like rats in a trap and they and they fought you know as you would expect people to do in that situation but no it's a, it was an extraordinary battle and it was fought because the bit of the Zulu army that had missed out on the plunder and the killing at Isamwana the reserve so you've always got four parts of a Zulu army the chest the two horns as I've already explained, and the reserve. And the reserve, of course, is to be used as it is in any military engagement. You send it in when it's needed um, to tip the balance. Well, it wasn't needed at Isamwana, so it carries on to Rourke's Drift. It's been given orders to go to Rourke's Drift, but not actually to attack the drift itself, because the drift is in uh, Natal, and that would have been, you know, a sort of declaration of war. Well, the war's already begun, but it would have been a, seen to be a very aggressive act. And Chechwayo, the Zulu king, was very much aware that he needed to defend his homeland. It's a little bit like the scenario of the Ukraine war at the moment. You know, you, you can defend your own homeland, but as soon as you start attacking the enemy, this seems to have sort of crossed the red line, even though you might have imagined, you know, you're way beyond all of that. So, but that was very much the feeling of Chechwayo, and he'd given his commander's orders not to cross the river, not to uh, uh, cross the gala river and attack the drift but just to you know to check it out as a show of force uh well they disobey those orders mainly because they want a bit of glory and they also see the drift which is effectively a supply depot defended by just a hundred soldiers uh, and another 39 guys in hospital so you know it's a soft touch frankly if you compare it to the camp in Samwana, there are about three thousand three to four thousand in in the reserve regiments uh, and as i say only a hundred defenders of the uh, drift itself. Now, they're put in a pretty uh, tricky situation because they get information from some of the stragglers who've got away from Isamwana saying, you know, the Zulus are coming here next. And frankly, you better you better get out of the way. Uh, and the initial instinct of the two officers there, Chard and Bromhead, is to leave. Uh, in fact, an order is given to, uh, you know, put the wounded in the wagons and they're going to set off. But luckily for them, they're dissuaded from doing it by a commissary who's a sort of senior NCO type figure uh, called Dalton, who says, James Dalton, who says, well, I, I would, wouldn't recommend that, sir, because if, if we do that, the Zulus are very fast moving. They'll catch us on the way to the next town. They were trying to get to a town called Help Makar, uh, and we'll all be butchered. So we've got more chance of surviving if we stay here. So the decision is taken to, re to reinforce, create a mini fortress out of the two main buildings at the drift, which is the hospital and the, and the main uh, building, and fortify them with mealie bags and wagons and various other things. And of course, if you've seen the film Zulu, as you say, Ollie, you'll know exactly what it looks like. I mean, it, it's a really accurate depiction of what they did there and, and, and how they tried to defend that position. The only thing that's not accurate is the setting because the film was, because they wanted the most spectacular backdrop, they filled it in the Drakensberg, the, the, the Dragon's Teeth Mountains, which are about, 30 or 40 miles away. In reality, it's a much kind of um, a less dramatic landscape. It's very beautiful, but much less dramatic uh, without those beautiful mountains in the, in the background. Well, one thing about um, the film and also, of course, your book is is um, is, is the Zulu uh, account. The, the, the presentation of the Zulus is very, um, as it should be, very sympathetically presented. The, 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 Zulu, the Zulu leader at Zendwana, um, I think... My pronunciation is 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 going to be dodgy here, but Shingweo, he's this extra, he, he's this general who wins right, this great yeah. victory, isn't he? Um, mm. And and 
so these are the sort of counterparts of Chelmsford. Chel- now we haven't really gone into who Chelmsford is, but you know, there's a picture of him um, uh, out there with a huge Victorian moustache. He looks sort of your archetype of a senior British officer in that period. What sort of um, what sort of man was he? And and do we know much about Chingueo beyond um, beyond you know his 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 leadership at, at Isenluana that day? Uh, We know that he was highly regarded in the Zulu nation, and this is a nation of warriors. Having said that, of course, there hadn't been any serious fighting for the Zulus, mainly because they had defeated most of their African opponents, and they are really only left with two serious opponents now, and that's the Boers. uh, And and also the British. So it's been quite a while for the, uh, you know, the, the, the guys who've become top commanders to kind of test themselves in battle. And although Jing Shuaia was was highly respected, it was probably as much as his sort of, uh, you know, his family antecedents as his ability in battle. He clearly was a, a, you know, talented warrior back in the day. And there was a lot of fighting going on in the in the um, 1850s, for example. But there hadn't been any serious wars for a while. So a lot of people were untested. Now, Interesting enough, Chelmsford, although, of course, he'd been chosen as commander in chief of of the British Army in in South Africa, didn't really have any field experience. He had served in the Abyssinian campaign, but as a staff officer. So he wasn't used to commanding troops in the field. Um, And of course, this is a bit of a disadvantage because he's making it up as he goes along. He's also hampered, as we've discussed, by this, you know, over overconfidence, uh, a sense that the Zulus are, are not really going to come on. They, they need to be discovered and found and forced to fight. Uh, and this basically puts him in a very dangerous situation, as we've discussed. But there was also another element to this overconfidence, which is that, you know, one of the basic uh, needs of all armies is to find the enemy. Um, every general knows this. And what you tend to do is you use scouts and, and spies and, you know, and, and reconnaissance. Uh, and there was a little bit of this done, but not seriously. And again, for the same reason, because there was this assumption Chelmsford had that the enemy wouldn't attack. So he he basically made just about every mistake you could in the rule book. He divided his force. He didn't understand where the enemy was. Overconfidence. I mean, this is a this is a sort of checklist of things not to do, uh, and you almost always get this checklist when there's a military disaster. Chelmsford had one thing in his favour: he's very well connected. Um, you, he was Baron Chelmsford, but he was also an aide de camp to Queen Victoria. So he was a royal favourite. And there's no question that after the battle, which was, of course, a terrible humiliation to have lost an army against the Zulus, there was he was in severe danger of being sacked immediately. Uh, and there's no question that the Queen protects him. There's a lot of criticism in Parliament. Um, and the Queen is the one saying to the Prime Minister Disraeli, no, 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 it's not his fault. Um, and anyway, look at look at what happened at Rourke Strip. So to take the story on from Rourke's Drift, that battle begins uh, as evening is falling on the um, on the afternoon of the 22nd, and it goes on all the way through the night to the early hours of the 21st. And during that time, there is wave after wave of attacks against this outer perimeter. At one stage, the Zulus break into the hospital, which, of course, is one of the keystones of the perimeter. And so they then have to withdraw to what they've called an inner perimeter, which has all been pre-planned in advance. Not by Chard, by the way, who takes the credit for all of this, but actually by Dalton, who's made all these suggestions as to how to construct the perimeter. And Dalton is is an ex-engineer. So he had these sort of understanding of how to do this. And... um, they managed to hold out against attack after attack, incredibly dramatic. And again, the, the film Zulu is very accurate on this until finally in the morning, 
um, the Zulus have had enough and they withdraw. Uh, there is no wonderful sort of, you know, singing and, you know, acknowledging the other's heroism. That is a that is a and they're not even construct. Welsh, are they, in, in reality? <laughs> and, and a lot of the uh, guys fighting at, at uh, a lot of the guys fighting at Rourke's Drift were not Welsh. They were members of the South Wales borderers, but they happened not to be Welsh. And the reason I know this is because we've got a kind of breakdown by nationality of the guys who were at Rourke's Drift. And indeed the regiment itself at that time was very much recruited in the Midlands and other parts of, of England. Yes, there were some Welsh in it, but it was about 20%. So we're not talking about uh, a regiment dominated by Welshmen. Uh, there were many more Englishmen. And well, that's that's very disappointing. But the um, the battle itself was just used ruthlessly really by the British, wasn't it? As a, as a propaganda tool to show that or to sort of so if you're having your breakfast in london um you don't really want to read about 1500 odd slaughtered at isn't one you want to read about a glorious victory um on the same day as well which which makes the the marma the toast and marmalade go down a little bit easier doesn't it yeah if you think of it from a political perspective disraeli's government is in real danger of falling over this humiliation uh you know, forget about chelmsford being superseded you, the government can fall it was a war interesting enough that was never pre-planned by the disraeli's government uh, in fact he tried to stop it he was warning uh, Frere that you know listen cool the whole issue against the Zulus at the moment because we've got another conflict brewing in Afghanistan which indeed does lead to a war there and he said we don't need two wars at the same time uh, Frere goes ahead regardless because he assumes well uh, Chancellor will be able to deal with these Zulus he was also overconfident uh, and so you get this unbelievable humiliation but what you've also got is uh, what uh, something that Disraeli describes as a little gleam of sunshine. Uh, this is the, the this is the exact quote he uses Queen Victoria when he said, "Well, we need to get you know we need to start talking about what happened uh, at Rourke's Drift because basically it's going to uh, you know it's going to take away from the humiliation at Istanbul." Now, no one is denying that those two battles didn't take place, or or indeed what happened in those battles. But what in my mind, there's no question that the government exaggerated the importance of Rourke's Drift. It saved Natal. In other words, all the settlers, the women and children in, in uh, the British colony of Natal, it saved them from being wiped out and, you know, and, and pillaged by uh, these marauding Zulus. Well, that was never going to happen. They they were intending to steal a few things from the mission station and then they head back into Zululand. There was no intention of invading Natal, but they wanted to make it seem like that was uh, at stake. And one of the ways they could exaggerate the importance of the battle is by awarding an awful lot of Victoria Crosses. So of the 120 or so, because some of the guys in the hospital fought as well, uh, who fought against the Zulus that day, very heroically, no one, no one's denying that for a second, uh, 11 of them were awarded the Victoria Cross, which is a, an utterly ludicrous percentage of medals to award for a single action, and indeed has never been surpassed to this day. So you have to ask the question, why were so many awarded? And it's not just me suggesting this, by the way, Ollie. People at the time, including um, uh, Woolsey, who I've already mentioned, were saying, you know, what on earth are we doing? These are two pretty mediocre officers at Rourke Strip. Uh, they were fighting, as I say, like rats in a trap and we're, we're giving them VCs. It's utter, utter madness. Um, I wouldn't say it's utter madness. They were brave as indeed everyone at Rourke Strip was brave, but did they all deserve VCs? No, I, I'm not convinced. And the irony of all of that is of course, uh, those Victoria Crosses, the two awarded to Chard and Bromhead are the most valuable Victoria Crosses ever awarded, partly because the film and the battle is so iconic. 
Well, after this, uh, after Rock's Drift and and Isn't Luana, uh, there's no way Britain can can retreat back to um, uh, back to the Southern Cape, can it? They they, they they have to deal with Zulu um, the Zulus once and for all. So, but Chelmsford has learned his lesson from now on, hasn't he? Yes, as I was uh, suggesting, he he realizes if he's going to go in again, which of course he does a couple of months later. He's going to go in again with overwhelming firepower, not divide his force and also prepare every night wherever they stop, effectively create an entrenchment. And it's during uh, uh, two or three battles in which these tactics are being used that the the resistance of the Zulus is finally broken. They get beaten at a number of battles. And the final one uh, conducted by Chelmsford himself is at Ulundi, which is very close to the Zulu capital. And that's when really the the uh, the final resistance, as I say, of the Zulus is broken, uh, and Chechwire then goes on the run. He's later captured, uh, sent to. He's later captured and uh, sent down to the Cape. You know, he's exiled from his homeland. He actually spends a little bit of time in the UK, in which he meets Queen Victoria. This rather sort of bizarre meeting between the uh, you know the deposed chieftain, the deposed king, uh, and Queen Victoria. And he even returns back to Zululand at one point, and they put him in charge of a smaller a sub sort of section of Zululand and the hope that he will provide some kind of political stability. But all this actually does, the British winning the war, is usher in a series of civil wars among the Zulus. They try and, you know, divide and rule and create a number of sub chieftain uh, ships, but they just keep on fighting against each other. So eventually the British have had enough. And in 1887, they annex the whole of Zululand and it's just added to the British Empire. Um, was it Lundi where they they first was that the first use of the machine gun in a for the by the British or have they been using those before? They do use the they do use the Gatling gun at, at Lundi. I think they use it at Gingen Lovu, which is one of the earlier battles. I might be wrong there. It's been a little bit of time since yeah, I, yeah. Uh, I looked in full detail at all the campaign. <laughs> but but uh, without question, this is the this is the war in which the the Gatlings are first used. And the Gatling, of course, is a is a, an American invention. It's originally been used in the US Civil War. And we're about to get what is going to be a much more effective weapon than that. And, and that, of course, is the Maxim gun. But the Gatling gun is a, is a kind of early machine gun. It, it's prone to jamming. It's not It's not a brilliant bit of kit. But of course, it fires at quite a high rate of fire compared to a single shot rifle. So it was a bit of a game changer. As long as you could keep it firing, there were some people in the British Army who thought it's more trouble than it's worth. Because if it jams, um, you know, we get this over, overwhelming kind of sense of security security from having it but if it jams you know we'll, we'll be incredibly vulnerable and, and it that happens in a number of other uh campaigns in, in Sudan for example where uh, a defeat is caused because these these weapons jam now one one individual that we haven't mentioned so far is Louis Napoleon of the great dynasty and it's amazing that he ends up in the British army and fighting in the Zulu war um but things don't end too well for him do they it's amazing subplot in the story of the Zulu War. Actually, I was astonished when I when I uh, discovered it. I mean, I wasn't the first one to write about it, but when I when I looked at the detail of it, because it doesn't really come into well, it doesn't come into at all either of the either of the films Zulu or Zulu Dawn, which are you know centered on those two battles. And the reason is that he comes out later on. He comes out with Woolsey, um, and and he takes part in the sort of second part of the campaign, which generally speaking is is victorious for the British, but. He's very ambitious. He's not a member of the British Army, although he's been trained at Sandhurst. He's not actually allowed to join the British Army because he is, of course, French. He's the son of the deposed uh, Emperor Napoleon III. 
uh, and there's a sort of political issue about joining the British army. And there are many people in France who are, of course, Bonapartists and hope that one day he will come back and be restored um, to power. So he's a very significant figure. He's the only son of uh, the, um, the former emperor, Napoleon III. Uh, and, and therefore the British realise we've got to keep an eye on this guy. You know, yes, we'll let him go out there as an observer, but we need to make sure he's safe. So Basically, they assign another officer to keep an eye on him, and he's always to go out with an escort. Well, what they don't reckon on is that he's as bold as a lion, uh, very headstrong, I suppose is a better way of putting it, and constantly is pushing the boundaries. And on one particular patrol he goes out on, he's got his escort with him, he's got his officer and he's got his escort, but uh, they all make the mistake take of uh, going into a village off saddling. So they get off their horses, they take the saddles off, uh, they're basically relaxing and not expecting there to be any trouble. And of course, what you've got in the Zulu war is you've got these big set piece battles, but you've also got a lot of guerrilla warfare going on in which if you were foolish enough to be caught with, you know, just a few soldiers, there's a danger the Zulus uh, are going to take you out. And that's indeed what happened. Now, incredibly bad bit of luck, because when the Zulus charge, all the uh, the escort uh, and the officer, a man called Lieutenant Carey, have time to get into get onto their horses. The last one to attempt to get onto his horse, because he was probably furthest away from his horse, was uh, Louis Napoleon. He still manages to grab hold of of his stirrup, and the horse is sort of cantering away, and he's holding onto the stirrup. So he's being pulled further away from the Zulus. And if if only that stirrup leather had held strong, he might have got away. But unfortunately, it snaps. <laughs> breaks he tumbles down into the dirt and of course within seconds the zulus are on him and he's found uh when they eventually recover his body with um uh i think 13 spear wounds in his chest uh all on the front and and even the zulus later acknowledged that he bravely faced his enemy uh, and died like a warrior so the war is a, a, a victory for the british but um it was as you as you've outlined an unprovoked attack into into Zululand from from the um, by by the British, but from what you describe, this militaristic society, this highly aggressive um, this highly aggressive nation, was it inevitable that there was going to be a war between Britain and and the Zulus? Probably, I mean it's a very good point because of course you know if you isolate. The sequence of events leading up to the war, it does look, you know, an appalling sort of act of aggression on the behalf of the British, you know, a bit like the, the, the Russians in Ukraine. You, you you would find it really hard to justify uh, what they did. Uh, and it looks like, a, you know, it, it, in fact, I, I'd go so far as to say all the wars I've studied in the 19th century, th this is the one that is least justifiable. It was a it was a preemptive war meaning it was fought because the British assumed sooner or later we're going to have to deal with the with the Zulus. They're an aggressive, militaristic society. Indeed, people were saying this. This is the sort of thing Frere was saying at the time. Uh, and better to deal with them, you know, sooner rather than later on, on our own terms, so to speak. And there probably is some truth in that. Was there room for the Zulus in their, in their militaristic state, the British and the Boers? No, it was always going to come down to a reckoning, which indeed it did with the Boers, as I've already explained, only a year later. So I think the war was inevitable. And if people um, uh, want to get het up on the fact that this is just another outrage by the empire i wouldn't deny much of that but i would say you also need to understand that the zulus were incredibly aggressive dangerous country that had by conquest destroyed many many african tribes uh, uh, and political uh, systems 
prior to this they were no shrinking violets uh and did they get what was coming to them well you know up to a point but it, it, you know you it's not a sort of simple thing of of peaceful africans being um you know being destroyed by aggressive europeans it's 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 a little bit more complicated than that but i suppose it's um it's it, it can it can be used as a great example of of why you know my view is empire it's the nature of empire is that you inevitably have um uh, have conflicts such as this where you know a larger aggressor is is keen to to take over a perceived threat but what's interesting in this is is that the the british empire the government of the british empire didn't want this to happen well certainly not at this stage and it's cooked up by by two colonial um well, one one general and one colonial. Um, yeah, Chelmsford and Frere. You're, yeah. you're right, Ollie, as I've explained. But I think you need to also uh, stress the fact that that was a matter of timing. The you know the the, the imperial government w- were no shrinking violets themselves. They they very much understood the power politics at play in Southern Africa. They wanted, as I've explained, eventually to create a confederation of Southern Africa. They hoped to do it bloodlessly, but of course, probably realised that certainly in the case of the Zulus a war would have to be fought. So it was really a timing issue rather than the fact that they were against fighting that war per se. And as I say, the ultimate aim is not to create a bigger British empire, is eventually to create a a, a white run, a white rules uh, political system that is Southern Africa or South Africa as it became, uh, you know, at the base of Africa, that was a, a sort of client of, of Britain's. So, and they we would keep our naval bases and our sort of strategic relevance to that part of the world too. So it was pretty cynical what they were trying to do. Um, but the idea that they were trying to expand the empire per se, no, that's a, that's a misunderstanding if anyone ever imagines that is the case. And in fact, most of the expansion of the empire in the 19th century is not a deliberate intention by the home government to expand the empire because frankly most people felt that empire was expensive which indeed it was it had to be policed and very few places in the empire actually produced money for the home country as opposed uh, to money going the other way so you mentioned that the um and we're, we're coming to the end you mentioned that the zulus um were sort of broken up into different sorts of tribes and Quechueo was was in charge of one and they're eventually subsumed into uh this colony do they become um a sort of willing participants or are they always rather rebellious post um post the, the war well there was a rebellion um led by um Chechuayo's son actually uh, a few years later so no they certainly don't go willingly of course they've been defeated in battle uh there have been a number of other uh, as I as I described it, sort of fraternal fighting or civil war between the Zulus. And, and there's always a kind of sense that the Zulu heritage, uh, the Zulu warrior heritage, is going to be a destabilizing influence on, on South Africa. Yeah, of course, after the Confederation of South Africa in, in 1910, where the Boers are brought into, into the political system as well, um, there is also always a fear that the Zulus are going to be are, are going to be potential troublemakers. And you can see even at the end of of white rule in South Africa in the in the early 1990s, uh, the Zulus, who still form the lar- largest single African grouping in South Africa, uh, were going to be a destabilizing political element, which indeed they were, and they're still very powerful in in South African politics today. Now, you, when I say destabilizing, I mean you know they, they have their own agenda, frankly, um, uh, and of course the the white uh, rulers 
who were relinquishing power in the early 1990s were trying to use the Zulus to destabilize the ANC and the other uh, other other elements, other players, as it were, political players. So, um, you know, it's a complicated history, but that Zulu warrior tradition is still relevant today. You still see people uh, getting dressed up in a sort of uh, warrior kit uh, that they would have worn in the 19th century. So they, they are very proud of their warrior heritage uh, and it still is relevant today. Indeed, Chief Butelezi, I think, played um, Quechueo in the film Zulu, which um, speaks That's to correct. what he, he's not a He's not a member of the royal family, but he is descended from the Butelezis, who were the, uh, were the hereditary premiers, the, the effectively prime ministers of Zululand. So he is very highly high born, so to speak, in the Zulu nation, Buthalesi. Um, uh, and, it, you know, it was a very it was a very good piece of casting, actually, to to have him in the um, in the film. And in fact, when I was involved in a documentary for BBC Time Watch in the early 2000s, we interviewed Chief Buthalesi uh, and he came out with some, you know, really wonderful sort of quotes and assessments of of why the war was fought and, and what it meant for the Zulu nation. So yes, their tradition and their history, as I say, is still very much at, at the forefront of their minds. Well, Saul, thank you so much for this. It's been a, a tour de force. It's 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 our uh, it's the aspects of history nonfiction book of the month. Fantastic book. I highly recommend it. And thank you for your time. Thanks, Ollie. Now I do hope you enjoyed that. I certainly did. But as we mentioned at the end there, the British causus belli was non-existent. But it is interesting to hear how that conflict was inevitable. Now, I'm not saying I approve in any sense, but I do think that of all the imperial wars of the 19th century, the Zulu one has resonance today. But it is complicated once you dig into the weeds. And I hope you do by reading Saul's book. Links are in the show notes. And if you want to get hold of me, you can. I'm at OllieWCQ on the Twitter or Email me at history at aspectsofhistory.com. Coming up next week, it's Gary Sheffield on the First World War. But until then, thank you and good night.